Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hi to all of you tuning us in on one of our affiliates across North America, and howdy to those listening via the Conspiracy Show app and those listening via the YouTube channel, Strange Planet. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Now, I also want to remind you about my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, and new episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. If you haven't had a chance to listen, I strongly urge you to subscribe and have those new episodes delivered to your desktop or your device Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And you can listen and subscribe at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. We just uh, launched this. It'll be two years in December, and we are closing in on three million unique downloads. So I'm very excited and and pleased with its uh, progress. Next week on The Conspiracy Show, Dr. Mark Mirabello. He's an author and professor of history at Shawnee State University in the United States. And uh, he's appeared on the, uh, the History Channel discussing deadly cults on ancient aliens and uh, he's also been uh, a guest on Coast to Coast AM. He's the author of a number of books, including The Odin Brotherhood, a nonfiction account of contact with an ancient brotherhood, and A Traveler's Guide to the Afterlife, The Cannibal Within, and uh, For Rebels and Outlaws. And again, Dr. Mark Mirabello will be with us next week. Now, the science of spirit possession. Dr. Terence Palmer has a degree in psychology from Canterbury Christ Church University, a master's degree in the study of mysticism and religious experiences from Kent University, and he is the author of The Science of Spirit Possession. I wanted to dive into some more cases and your use of spirit release therapy. Uh-huh. Uh, there is a, the remarkable case of a, a, a young schoolgirl you discovered, who was confined to a wheelchair, and there was no sort of underlying medical reason why she had lost the use of her legs. Talk to me about this case. Yes, this was one of my very earliest cases where I was able to um, uncover the the link between uh, the power of fear in attracting negative entities. In order to discover the reason why this young woman had lost the use of her legs. I used a hypnotic technique where she was able to access past memories. And it's a very, very simple process. And I used to, when I was doing one-to-one therapy as a hypnotherapist, I don't do that now because I just do the remote work, but um, a very, very common and easy way of uncovering the cause of an illness is to say to the person, right, on the count of three, you go to that time and place where this problem began, one, two, three, and you can click your fingers and the, and the patient goes there and you ask them to describe to you what is happening. Now, when I did this with this young woman, she was just 15 years old, her mother was in the room and despite the power of the suggestion, she was reluctant to tell me what she was experiencing. She was embarrassed. She felt shame. So I brought her out of the altered state, out of the trance, and I said, um, just give me an indication of what was happening 
at the time that everyone was aware of. And she said, I was in the back garden of my friend's house. We were playing games. She was about eight years old. And, um, and, and something happened that embarrassed her that she didn't want to talk about. And uh, so I had to get the mother to leave the room because she didn't want to speak in front of her mother. And it transpired that um, uh, a relative of her friend, an uncle, tried to molest her. Ah. So, so the intense fear, going back to what I was saying earlier about the, the energetic vibration of human emotions, this sends out a beacon. It, it, it's like an explosion of energy, of fear. And, and this attracts the, um, uh, the what we call dark force entity, a DFE, uh, an interdimensional species that feeds off that emotional energy, and that's what um, she was affected by. That's how it. That's how it came to be attracted to her. And and why would this DFE uh, manifest itself in her by through paralysis of her her legs? What you need to try to consider is that these these interdimensional species they um, they need to sustain their existence of feeding off energy. So in order for it to maintain its attachment to her, it had to keep her in a state of fear. And that fear led to the paralysis. Yeah, well, it, the fear can affect you in all sorts of ways, can't right. it? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. But that, that was the key. And that was when I realized that the, uh, uh, and I began to form a hypothesis then. Uh, my scientific mind started working. And I went to a professor of psychology uh, at Bangor University when I was doing my, um, my research. And I suggested to him that all non-organic mental illness is caused by fear so if you think about it with the exception of brain damage or chemical damage to the brain right interference for the normal function of the brain with the exception of that all other forms of mental illness are caused by fear Mm. and i have been continuously um convinced of that in in all my work so when we are working in this field, I'm working with my colleagues, I, and, and I'm teaching people how to do this, I say to them, right at the beginning, fear is not allowed. It's not permitted. You cannot do this work if you harbour fear, because fear will attract the dark forces to stop you working. It's that simple. And and uh, how did you, I mean, if it's the, the spirit of uh, a, an earthbound soul, you direct it towards the light. If, yes. it's, if it's not, if it's some other type of this dark force entity, how yeah. do you exercise that? You just ask the spirit beings that work with us to take it away. And the moment this DFE left this girl's body, what happened? She could walk again. Did you wit- Were you there to witness her getting up out of her chair? And taking no, those first steps? No, no, it took a couple of days for it a couple of days for it to settle in. Yeah. I mean, if uh, you'd witness a miracle, wouldn't you? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. If it happened like that. <laughs> and, but sadly, it doesn't. It depends on the person. Sometimes they can recover in a day, sometimes a few days. But, 
yeah, you you always need to check back to see how the person's doing. As a scientist, I need to know that this method works. And that it's repeatable. Yes. Most importantly, as a scientist, right? That you have to yes. be able to repeat it. So uh, tell me about the teacher who had this impulse to electrocute herself. Oh, yeah, I bumped into her recently, actually. <laughs> In a show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a very, very interesting case. She, um, quite a detailed case, actually. It turned out that on investigation, we discovered that she had uh, an energetic resonance from a past life where she had been accused of being a witch. This was in the 15th century in Scotland. And she, we found her imprisoned in, in, in a prison in Scotland awaiting um, to be hanged as a witch. Uh, but she was a healer. She's uh, like a lot of people. They have natural gifts of healing. But because of the persecution by the church in the Middle Ages, um, she was um, imprisoned as a witch. So in this life, she was reluctant to go into nursing, which was her first um, really preferred profession. So she took up teaching instead. Okay, so the, the 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 energetic resonance, and it's beyond conscious memory, but there's something in within the spirit memory uh, that remembers these things. So she was a, a potential healer. Now, for people who are healers or potential healers, genuine spirit, um, genuine light workers, we are seen by dark forces as the enemy and this this is a constant battle between light and dark and you know people and scientists may scoff at these ideas but i have scientific evidence to support these hypotheses people who work in this field are under constant attack from dark forces that try to stop us from working and this is what was happening to this woman she had a, a demonic type creature with her that was uh, inducing her into the irresistible impulse to put her fingers in live electric light sockets so that she would expire. And she was fighting hard to resist it. So when we discovered what was causing it and removed it, then she was fine. Finally, I, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the possession of a patient by an entity that was identified as Dark Samuel. Tell me about that oh, case. Yeah. <laughs> Dark Samuel. He was earthbound. He was um, the spirit of a person who had lived an earth life. He was a man who died. And in a previous life, he had um, possessed this person, the patient, the client, as, as a slave. Um, and when he died, he didn't want to relinquish his possession. So he remained earthbound and kept her um, to himself. He, he was working hard to prevent her from living a normal life, having normal relationships. She couldn't marry anyone. She couldn't maintain a relationship because um, he was preventing it. So... Uh, and what was interesting about him was that he was so dark, I just called him Dark Samuel. Um, 
And uh, when we release someone to the light, what we normally do is ask for someone who loves them to come and collect them and show them the way, someone who's gone before. Um, and that usually works rather well. But in, in Dark Samuel's case, there was no one who loved him, no one who went before, who wanted to... <laughs> Mm. He wanted to escort him, so this presented a bit of a problem. So I thought, well, what do we do now? And then it, again, in answer to that question, what do we do now? If you send a, a serious question out to the universe, you will get an answer. And uh, in answer to my plea for help, um, one of the archangels came. I think it was Gabriel came uh, to escort him, and Dark Samuel started whimpering and showing signs of fear. And I said, what's the matter, Samuel? He said, Gabriel, come to get me. I can't argue with him, so I'd better go. <laughs> hmm. It was quite uh, quite funny. What do you say to the, the, the skeptics who might suggest that this, um, this effect that you're having or that your team... Uh, is having through spiritual release therapy is is an example of the placebo effect. Yes, it's an interesting idea, isn't it? A placebo itself is an interesting idea because what placebo actually demonstrates is the power of belief, doesn't it? Yes. That's all it is. Placebo is the power of belief. And yes, there could be um, an element of that attached to this method if a person believes that what you're doing is going to heal them and it works yeah it could be the power of placebo in order to test against that what we do is um and this is where the scientific method comes into its own when i receive a request for help from a client um i don't tell the medium anything about the details of the case the medium has no preconceived ideas it's just another case and it could involve anything uh, we work on the case uh, we deal with the problem that's presented and then I will leave it for 24 hours and wait for the um, the intervention to start having an effect okay um, what I my favorite uh, procedure is to do nothing is just to wait for that client to contact me and say what have you what did you do and when did you do it because I'm feeling so much better hmm. so if the client doesn't know when the procedure is being conducted it can't be placebo can it right right and you have cases or have you had cases where the patient if I can use that term they don't believe, and yet it works anyway. Yes, many of our cases are brought by family members on behalf of their loved ones. Uh, extreme examples of this are where you have a parent who has a, uh, a, a son, usually a son, sometimes a daughter, who's been sectioned, is um, uh, in psychiatric hospital or in prison, but generally in psychiatric hospital on uh, antipsychotic medication so that they they have no conscious awareness of what's going on. You can't communicate with them. You can't even reach them physically. So um, and when we work on cases like this, um, it doesn't matter what the person, the patient believes or doesn't believe because they are consciously non-functioning anyway. But when they recover 
and the psychiatrists have no other course of action than to release them from hospital. Um, how do you explain that? You know, what's fascinating is that the field of psychology, and I'm gathering that, you know, the vast, vast majority do not believe um, in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would probably even deny the existence of the soul, yet yes. yeah. the, the root word of psychology, psyche, literally yes. means soul in Greek. Yes, it does, yes. Uh, I wanted to ask you about, because you were you came to America and you worked with uh, another member of uh, the, um, the Spirit Release Foundation, and you were working with convicted uh, spousal abusers, wife beaters, and sexual abusers. Yes. Uh, tell me about your work in, in America, working with these, these convicts. Well, I was introduced to a gentleman who had been appointed by the court to, as a facilitator to help these convicted criminals um, uh, adapt and change their, their behaviour. They were appointed, they were ordered by a court of law to attend to his um, rehabilitation program for a year. And he had about 10 or 12 people that he was working with. And um, I asked him if he'd be interested in learning something that would help him with his work. And he said, yes, of course, I would. So um, I taught him the method, introduced him to the method, and then asked him to uh, ask his cohort of of, uh, people that he was working with if any of them would like to volunteer for this method. And there were three or four volunteers said they'd like to try it. And, of course, they didn't have to do anything. They didn't know when it was going to happen. They just went about their business normally. But we worked on um, three or four cases. And and, and the, the difference that they, these people felt was reported. So the, um, the facilitator of this program... Um, was was absolutely amazed. He said, this is wonderful. This, we have to use this. So he went to his employer, the Pennsylvania State um, Judiciary, or whatever the name of the organization was that appointed him as, as rehabilitation manager. He went to them and said, this is the method. Can we um, employ it? And they said, well, this certainly sounds very, very interesting. It, 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 it needs to be looked at in greater detail. Uh, he asked permission if we could conduct a clinical trial under controlled conditions, and they said, yes, you can, providing it is supervised and managed by an established scientific institution. And I thought, great, this is wonderful. This, now this is back in 2002, 2003, around about that time. I said, this is wonderful, fantastic. Uh, But we're still looking for that scientific institution that's willing to take on the challenge. We haven't found it yet. They're still too scared to test it. Hmm. And uh, was there any uh, recidivism with any of the the cases that you worked? I can't answer that question because I had to come back back to UK. And in fact, I was... um, in the middle of my studies at the time, and um, I, I really couldn't follow it up. And, and this is, again, the reason why we need a scientific institution to look into this, because 
I'm I'm just a, a one man researcher. I'm um, I'm teaching other people how to do it. I've got a caseload that I'm working with. I'm gathering research, and I'm showing how to integrate clinical practice with research and teaching. Uh, but I'm still only one man. This this really takes. Um, a department in a scientific institution. What I'm really looking for is a psychiatric hospital or a clinic that has access to patients with common problems like hearing voices, for example, where these uh, methods can be tested under controlled conditions. I can't possibly do it alone. All right, we'll take another quick time out, come back and uh, continue our discussion on the science of spirit possession with Dr. Terence Palmer right here on The Conspiracy Show. Follow the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Dr. Terence Palmer, The Science of Spirit Possession, now in its second edition. And uh, that is available uh, through the publisher. And uh, that is Cambridge Scholars Publishing. We were talking earlier about your work with uh, convicts, uh, spousal abusers, wife beaters, uh, sexual abusers. I'm wondering about... I don't know if you've worked with uh, people convicted of homicide, but when you look back sort of historically at some of the more high-profile murderers, serial killers, people like John Wayne Gacy, uh, for example, in America, or uh, Mark David Chapman, not a serial killer, but um, the, the, the man who killed John Lennon, based on interviews with these people, what are your thoughts about the possibility that serial killers, murderers, are affected by spirit, uh, possession, or oppression? Well, I've given this an awful lot of thought. In fact, when I returned from the United States, when I had been working with those um, wife beaters and sexual abusers, um, these ideas were uppermost in my mind. And I came back and I I watched a television program on UK television. Um, There was an American author being interviewed about her book, Helen Morrison, my life amongst serial killers. Uh, so I bought, I got a copy of the book and I read it. And uh, as I was reading it, certain passages jumped out at me and demanded my attention. And I, I um, cited them. I made a note of them. And I put together an article that was entitled um, Serial Killers, Serial Rapists and Pedophiles. Are they evil people? Are they psychologically disturbed or are they possessed? Now, um, this was uh, an article that gave me my introduction to the university where I did my uh, PhD because that that was my um, key, my introduction, if you like. And what's interesting is that when... When I presented this paper at a conference in Bangor, the conference was attended primarily by anthropologists with an interest in field studies with ethnic minority groups and traditional religions. So this idea of criminals being possessed by demons went completely over the heads. It it was as if it it just wasn't noticed at all. And that, that article, that paper has never been published in a journal. I'm still sitting on it. But it gave me the 
the idea. And when reading through Helen Morrison's book, it, it's blatantly obvious to me um, when you read that with this knowledge in the back of your mind, it's, it's blatantly obvious that when a killer says, um, God told me to do it, or the demon shouted at me to go and kill these people, that it, it is not just mental illness. There's a facet of that, yes, of course, because the person has lost their ability to exercise their free will. So you could call that mental illness if you like. But in, in more recently, I visited the United States about three years ago by invitation um, to a group of people in Michigan that wanted to learn these techniques from me. And as soon as I arrived, um, the head of the organization said to me, we've just had an incident locally. Uh, a, a, an Uber taxi driver has just been uh, arrested for killing six people in Kalamazoo County. Do you think this has got anything to do with spirit possession? I said, well, let's find out. So I sat down with uh, with a group of people. Uh, there were a couple of really good mediums there. and We were testing the, the method, how it worked. And this was a case that we were presented with where we could test the method. We were given the name of the uh, taxi driver. And we sat in circle. And I asked the medium to connect with him. And he was in jail. And then, and, and this is recorded, it's on YouTube, you can watch this, it's called the Kalamazoo Killer, and I had a conversation with the spirit entity that induced him to kill six people. My word. So the answer is yes. And the accused in this case, what happened? Did he notice? Uh, well, he's regarded as mentally ill. Uh, are you guilty of a crime? Uh, was he sane at the time? that he committed it, I don't know. If I presented this case at a conference in, in the UK at a university a couple of years ago where we had a discussion about the, the legal implications of this, but it was a discussion between psychiatrists and theorists. Um, I don't really know what the outcome of the case was, but we can only assume that he's... Um, I don't know what the sentence is in Michigan for killing six people. Is it the death sentence or is it lifelong imprisonment? But I should imagine that um, his plea that the devil made him do it fell on deaf ears. So, I mean, obviously, this is very controversial to say the least because then it calls into question the whole idea of personal responsibility uh, yes. in, in criminal action. So yes. speak to that yes. if you could. Yes, very, very tricky. Um, very difficult. Um, when a person is possessed by uh, a very, very powerful and determined and highly intelligent spirit, it's very difficult to to resist that. So a person who is weak-willed or vulnerable in some way uh, is more likely to succumb. A person who is strong-willed and has a, a very, very powerful, strong sense of self would be able to defy that and beat that off. So, yeah. But then... Is it right to punish someone who's vulnerable? They're being punished anyway by by the by the possessing entity. It's, yeah, it's a very very tricky area, and I can understand. And I've spoken to lawyers about this. I've spoken to top lawyers about this and discussed this. Um, and the general consensus is that it's too tricky for the legal profession to even consider. Is a spirit possession or oppression? Always precipitated by some sort of trauma uh, to that person to make them vulnerable? 
Uh, I would hesitate to use the word always, but there is a powerful indication that would suggest yes. Can it be physical or emotional? Yeah, it can be physical or emotional. Yeah, the, the most vulnerable people are, pe are children who are abused in childhood. So people, young children who are exposed to satanic ritual abuse, um, uh, and I've met them, we've, we've, we've had clients who've suffered this, and those that come through it and survive turn out to be extremely powerful, very strong people uh, for being survivors. Of course, there are many that don't survive. They commit suicide. Who else is vulnerable? Uh, you mentioned uh, children who are victims of abuse. What about uh, drug and alcohol addicts? Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, it, the cases that I deal with, every one of them is recorded. They're recorded in two ways. One statistical um, and the other is audio-visual um, when we are uh, communicating on the case. So these cases can be studied uh, statistically when the cohort's big enough uh, and they can be studied phenomenologically with qualitative discourse analysis. Um, and what we're finding is that a very, very high proportion of cases uh, had vulnerability because of alcohol and drug abuse. Can it be kind of a chicken and an egg type scenario though? Because does the alcohol or drug abuse open that person up to an oppression or does the oppression feed that addiction? A bit of both really. I'll tell you where it's dangerous. It's like a self-reinforcing cycle. A person can suffer a bereavement and we all suffer bereavement. We all lose loved ones and friends, you know, and, and grief is a human condition that we all experience. But someone who is unable to accept a loss and goes into a deep, desperate depression may find uh, self-medication with drugs or alcohol a relief. Okay, But the moment that substance is put into the body, it depletes the power of the protective aura around us. And that gives that is the vulnerability that is then penetrating. Imagine that you've got this aura around you. It's like a shell that protects you from infection, from spiritual dimensions. If that aura is perforated, becomes weak, then it, it's like the skin on your body protects you from insect bites, doesn't it? Mm, uh, and that infection. Uh, and you have an immune system that fights off the infection if it gets penetrated. The spiritual body is very similar. It has this outer skin uh, that is um, depleted with any kind of chemical that's, that's put into the body. And that can include uh, all manner of drugs, not just recreational drugs, but medicines as well. So if a person gets depressed, goes to the doctor, gets antidepressant, it depletes the immune system and the aura and it makes them vulnerable to spirit interference. So it doesn't help the problem at all. It just makes it worse. Self-reinforcing cycle. We'll take another quick time out. Come back uh, with more on the science of spirit possession with Dr. Terence Palmer. Stay with us. Richard Sarah. 
Welcome back. Dr. Terrence Palmer stays with us as we continue to discuss the science of spirit possession. And let me read you a definition of spirit release therapy from the second edition of the book. Spirit release therapy is a term that is used by some practitioners, but not all, to describe a treatment modality that has evolved from the pioneering clinical experience of medical practitioners, psychiatrists, and clinical psychologists who have encountered patients with illnesses that have not responded to traditional psychotherapy or psychiatric methods. Such pioneers have treated them successfully using their own intuition and by responding to the expressed needs of the patient and those spirit entities that are encountered in dialogue rather than treating them according to predetermined theories and the beliefs and assumptions of the therapist. Spirit release therapy could therefore be described as a person-centered or perhaps a soul-centered therapy. Terence, I wanted to ask you about schizophrenia because you had mentioned that based on your research, virtually all, I believe you refer to it as all non-organic psychological afflictions Mm-hmm. are caused by a spirit, attachment, oppression. But what about schizophrenia? Well, you can include that, of course. Um, let me correct you first of all. Uh, what I did say was that n- all non-organic um, illnesses, mental illnesses, are caused by fear. Ah, right. And, and fear is the attractant for a lot of uh, interdimensional species that feed off that negative energy. Uh, fear is just one of those negative energies. Anger is another one. Anger and rage will attract um, uh, such entities. But yes, uh, taking schizophrenia. Now, I'm not a medically trained doctor and I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm not qualified to comment on psychiatric diagnoses. But my understanding as a psychologist is... Uh, and my experience of working with spirit entities is that schizophrenia is a label given to certain mental illnesses by people who really don't understand what the real problem is. So it's a label to mask um, lack of knowledge, really, in my personal opinion. So very often we'll, we'll get a case referred to us by a family member of someone uh, who's in hospital, usually a, a son or a daughter, but sometimes a mother. We had a, a mother recently referred to us by a daughter who'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia by the medical profession. And when we investigated, we found that she was afflicted with um, non-human, interdimensional creatures that were feeding off her vulnerability. And once they were removed, then she was re- returned to normal cognitive functioning. What happens when a person is diagnosed with having some sort of a an organic brain disorder, brain disease, and but it's misdiagnosed and it is in fact based on fear, as you say, mm-hmm. and that person is given uh, drugs which seem to mask the problem. Yes. Uh, in some cases, it seems to to alleviate symptoms. How does that work? Well, let me tell you that removing the um, interdimensional life forms that that use this vulnerability, that's the easy part. Okay, Cleaning up the spirit is the easy part. The difficult part is getting psychiatry to acknowledge that the drugs are not doing any good at all and, and to have that person released from the medication 
that's the hard part. But the effect of uh, if a person has a, an attachment, mm-hmm. what are the effects of the medication on that attachment, if any? The medication doesn't affect the attachment. The medication affects the brain of the of the patient. Uh, the medication affects the cognitive functioning of the person, and and weakens their um, their, their resistance to spiritual infection. Um, this is, and this is a big problem for us because we, I don't want to be seen as negatively challenging the medical profession. What I want to try to do is to say to medicine and psychiatry, uh, what we have to offer here is adding value to medicine. So when you, when you uh, take a person into hospital who's showing signs of psychotic behavior and hearing voices, Consider this as well, not just load them up with drugs and and hope for the best, because that's not going to work. Consider this possibility. Work with us to to find the best practice for treating this person rather than just giving them drugs and not considering anything else. This is my message to psychiatry. I don't want to go to war with psychiatry. I want to help psychiatry. One last time out, we'll come back and finish up with Dr. Terence Palmer, The Science of Spirit Possession. Stay with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're talking about psychological uh, diseases, afflictions. What about the advancement of neuroimaging? Uh, what, if anything, has that contributed to, to, to your area of research? Okay, neuroimaging is, uh, is useful for illustrating what happens to the brain when a person is having an experience. Now, I'm not an expert on neurology or neuroimaging at all. But in my book, I have referenced experiments that have been conducted uh, using uh, people who have the gift of automatic writing. Now, automatic writing is a form of spirit possession where the the person uh, goes into an altered state of consciousness, into a trance, and the spirit controls the hand and uses it to write. And this is very, very well known um, in, um, in in research methods in investigating spirit possession. And again, it's not common knowledge. It's not widely known. It's get very, very quiet. But there are neuroimaging techniques that can show what happens in the brain when a person is engaged in automatic writing. And it's, um, it, it's well worth a read because it's, the outcome is quite surprising. What it shows is that contrary to what you may think, um, uh, when a person, when a person's hand is being used in automatic writing, uh, there's very, very little activity in the brain. It's resting. It's being ah, quiet. Interesting. So it's using it without conscious effort of the person that owns the brain. I'm wondering if there's been any experiments with neuroimaging and mediums who are communicating with spirit guides. Now, that's an interesting question, and I'd love to be able to answer that 
that question by engaging in research to investigate that. So I'd, I'd love to hear from someone who has the equipment <laughs> and the resources to co to uh, collaborate with me on answering that question. I'd love to investigate that because I I have daily access to lots and lots of mediums who do this work. Talk to me about quantum theory and in your area uh, or your field of expertise and what has uh, particularly, you know, the three sort of tenets of quantum theory, what has that contributed to your understanding of spirit possession, spirit oppression? Okay, so I have to use layman's language here because, I, again, I'm not a, a quantum physicist. Um, I've only investigated this from uh, my research reading um, of the experts. Um, but what it does for me, it enables me to reconcile the... the the fact that I experience on a daily basis that the work I do and the effect it has on people is beyond time and space. So we have the um, the principle of non-locality, which is now firmly established in quantum physics, and, and that for me gives gives us uh, a valuable and valid introduction to the possibility that. Um, quantum physics has a lot of the answers that we've been looking for in this area. I'd like to, to ask you about the connection. When we're talking about an earthbound uh, spirit who <coughs> attaches to someone, mm-hmm. how, I mean, is there uh, a connection between a violent and sudden death and an attachment? In other words, if a person dies under violent circumstances, is that person more likely to attach to some living soul? Yes, they are. Um, we've had several cases where an earthbound spirit is um, remains earthbound because of a sudden death in in a motorcycle accident or car accident, or on the battlefield. Um, we've had earthbound spirits attached to people where they've just been in in the environment where an accident has happened. And the spirit finds itself out of the body, is confused, doesn't know where to go, uh, but is attracted to a passerby because they just need comfort. Um, uh, if a child is suddenly killed or uh, if a child dies in hospital, they remain earthbound, they will attach to a person who has a warm and compassionate nature because they're looking for a mother figure. Um, if an alcoholic uh, dies and finds himself still uh, earthbound, he will attach to uh, a still living alcoholic. So there's a sympathetic resonance that causes, it's like a mag- magnetism that attaches the spirit. Now, we've had some earthbound spirits who've been killed in a war zone. We had a, a family, a, a woman and two children who got bombed into oblivion in um uh, during the Bosnian conflict and uh, a, a soldier that was serving there at the time um, picked her up uh, so to speak and, and we worked with him he'd actually been suffering from hearing voices for 23 years under psychiatric diagnosis of schizophrenia and PTSD and came to us it's recorded, it's on YouTube you can watch it it's all about hearing voices the soldier that had uh, a family attached to him that were blown up in the street. 
all kinds of things happen that enable an earthbound to attach to a person. Is it possible to have a positive attachment? Yes. Uh, a very common earthbound attachment is where a loved one has died, uh, but the, the person who's died is reluctant to leave their family and wants to stay with them, and they attend their own funeral and, and such. Um, and uh, similarly, you have the family that are such, in such grief that they can't let go of their loved one who's died, and that causes them to remain earthbound. And how many of us, I mean, I don't know if you have a handle on this, uh, maybe there's been polling done, but how many, how many of us throughout our lifetime are likely to suffer some sort of even ephemeral uh, attachment? Uh, you know, it may come and it may go all on its own. Well, I would, I would suggest all of us can be affected in some way, in one way or another. I mean, as human beings, we are vulnerable to infection from all kinds of things, aren't we? You can catch a cold. You can you can you can pick up an infection from another person. If you if you sleep with the wrong person, you can get a sexually transmitted disease. In fact, we had a case recently of a woman who had lain with a man who had been infected with uh, what you would call perhaps call a uh, a sexual demon a succubus incubus and it, and he passed it on to her so we have a physical body that's vulnerable to infection of all kinds we have a spiritual body that's vulnerable to infection of all kinds i myself have had personal experiences of various different types of infection that have to be cleared with the help of colleagues. In fact, every month we all have a spiritual health check to make sure that we're still clear. But not covered by the National Health Service so far, <laughs> so far. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, <laughs> yeah, oh, I laugh at that. Listen, if the National Health Service employed the methods we use, it wouldn't be in half the trouble that it's in. Excellent point. The Science of Spirit Possession, second edition, now available, and it's uh, published by Cambridge Scholars. You can order it online at the Cambridge Scholars Publishing website. Terence, a great pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you, Richard. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I welcome the opportunity to try to educate people. It's not all fantasy. It's not supernatural nonsense. This is real, and it's scientific. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you. Okay, that's it for me. My thanks to Owen Wolf and Ryan White. Back next week with Mark Mirabello talking secret societies. Until then, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I say in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim from the rooftops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night.